Chapter 1, Section 1 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero, translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 1, Architecture, Civil and Military. Section 1, Houses. Archaeologists, when visiting Egypt, have so concentrated their attention upon temples and tombs that not one has devoted himself to a careful examination of the existing remains of private dwellings and military buildings. Few countries, nevertheless, have preserved so many relics of their ancient civil architecture. Setting aside towns of Roman or Byzantine date, such as are found almost intact at Koft, Koptos, at Komombo, and at, and at Elagandaya, one half at least of ancient Thebes still exists on the east and south of Karnak. The site of Memphis is covered with mounds, some of which are from fifty to sixty feet in height, each containing a core of houses in good preservation. At Cahun, the ruins and remains of a whole provincial twelfth dynasty town have been laid bare. At Tel el Maskuta, the granaries of Pithom are yet standing. At San, Tanis, and Telbasta, Bubastus, the Ptolemaic and Satic cities, contain quarters of which plans might be made, and in many localities, which escape the traveller's notice, there may be seen ruins of private dwellings which date back to the age of the Ramessides, or to a still earlier period. As regards these fortresses, there are two in the town of Abydos alone, one of which is at least contemporary with the Sixth Dynasty, while the ramparts of El Kab, of Qom el Amha, of El Hibeh and of Dhaka, as well as part of the fortifications of Thebes, are still standing and await the architect who shall deign to make them an object of serious study. 1. Private Dwellings The soil of Egypt, periodically washed by the inundation, is a black, compact, homogeneous clay, which becomes of stony hardness when dry. From immemorial time the Fellahin have used it for the construction of their houses. The hut of the poorest peasant is a mere rudely shaped mass of this clay, a rectangular space some eight or ten feet in width, by perhaps sixteen or eighteen feet in length, is enclosed in a wickerwork of palm branches, coated on both sides with a layer of mud. As this coating cracks in the drying, the fissures are filled in, and more coats of mud are daubed on until the walls attain a thickness of from four inches to a foot. Finally, the hole is roofed over with palm branches and straw, the top being covered in with a thin layer of beaten earth. The height varies. In most huts, the ceiling is so low that to rise suddenly is dangerous both to one's head and to the structure, while in others the roof is six or seven feet from the floor. Windows, of course, there are none. Sometimes a hole is left in the middle of the roof to let the smoke out, but this is a refinement undreamt of by many. At the first glance, it is not always easy to distinguish between these huts of wattle and daub and those built with crude bricks. The ordinary Egyptian brick is a mere oblong block of mud mixed with chopped straw and a little sand and dried in the sun. At a spot where they are about to build, one man is told off to break up the ground, others carry the clods and pile them in a heap, while others again mix them with water, knead the clay with their feet, and reduce it to a homogeneous paste. This paste, when sufficiently worked, is pressed by the head workman in moulds made of hardwood, while an assistant carries away the bricks 
as fast as they are shaped, and lays them out in rows, a little distance apart, to dry in the sun. A careful brickmaker will leave them thus for half a day, or even a whole day, after which the bricks are piled in stacks in such wise that the air can circulate freely among them, and so they remain for a week or two before they are used. More frequently, however, they are exposed for only a few hours to the heat of the sun, and the building is begun while they are yet damp. The mud, however, is so tenacious that, notwithstanding this carelessness, they are not readily put out of shape. The outer faces of the bricks become disintegrated by the action of the weather, but those in the inner part of the wall remain intact, and are still separable. A good modern workman will easily mould a thousand bricks a day, and after a week's practice he may turn out 1,200, 1,500, or even 1,800. The ancient workman, whose appliances in no wise differed from those of the present day, produced equally satisfactory results. The dimensions they generally adopted were 8.7 by 4.3 by 5.5 inches for ordinary bricks, or 15.0 by 7.1 by 5.5 for a larger size. Though both larger and smaller are often met with in the ruins. Bricks issued from the royal workshops were sometimes stamped with the cartouches of the reigning monarch, while those made in private factories bore on the side a trademark in red ochre, a squeeze of the moulder's fingers, or the stamp of the maker. By far the greatest number have, however, no distinctive mark. Burnt bricks were not often used before the Roman period, nor tiles either flat or curved. Glazed bricks appear to have been in fashion in the delta. The finest specimen that I have seen, namely one in the Giza Museum, is inscribed in black ink with the cartouches of Ramses III. The glaze of this brick is green, but other fragments are coloured blue, red, yellow, or white. The nature of the soil does not allow of deep foundations. It consists of a thin bed of made earth, which, except in large towns, never reaches any degree of thickness. Below this comes a very dense humus, permeated by slender veins of sand, and below this again, at the level of infiltration, comes a bed of mud, more or less soft, according to the season. The native builders of the present day are content to remove only the made earth, and lay their foundations on the primeval soil, or, if that lies too deep, they stop at a yard or so below the surface. The old Egyptians did likewise, and I have never seen any ancient house of which the foundations were more than four feet deep. Even this is exceptional, the depth in most cases not being more than two feet. They very often did not trouble themselves to cut trenches at all, they merely levelled the space intended to be covered, and, having probably watered it to settle the soil, they at once laid the bricks upon the surface. When the house was finished, the scraps of mortar, the broken bricks, and the accumulated refuse of the work made a bed of eight inches or a foot in depth, and the base of the wall, thus buried, served instead of a foundation. When the new house rose on the ruins of an older one, decayed by time or ruined by accident, the builders did not even take the trouble to raise the old walls to the ground. Levelling the surface of the ruins, they built upon them at a level a few feet higher than before. Thus each town stands upon one or several artificial mounds, the tops of which may occasionally rise to a height of from 60 to 80 feet above the surrounding country. The Greek historians attributed these artificial mounds to the wisdom of the kings, and especially to Sestorus, who, as they supposed, wished to raise the towns above the inundation. Some modern writers have even described the process 
which they explain thus a cellular framework of brick walls like a huge chessboard formed the superstructure the cells being next filled in with earth and the houses built upon this immense platform but where i have excavated especially at thebes i have never found anything answering to this conception the intersecting walls which one finds beneath the later houses are nothing but the ruins of older dwellings which in turn rest on others still older the slightness of the foundations did not prevent the builders from boldly running up quite lofty structures in the ruins of memphis i have observed walls still standing from thirty to forty feet in height the builders took no precautions beyond enlarging the base of the wall and vaulting the floors the thickness of an ordinary wall was about sixteen inches for a low house but for one of several stories it was increased to three or four feet large beams embedded here and there in the brickwork or masonry bound the whole together and strengthened the structure the ground floor was also frequently built with dressed stones while the upper parts were of brick the limestone of the neighbouring hills was the stone commonly used for such purposes the fragments of sandstone granite and alabaster which are often found mixed in with it are generally from some ruined temple the ancient egyptians having pulled their neglected monuments to pieces quite as unscrupulously as do their modern successors the houses of an ancient egyptian town were clustered round its temple and the temple stood in a rectangular enclosure to which access was obtained through monumental gateways in the surrounding brick wall the gods dwelt in fortified mansions or at any rate redoubts to which the people of the place might fly for safety in the event of any sudden attack upon their town such towns as were built all at once by prince or king were fairly regular in plan having wide paved streets at right angles to each other and the buildings in line the older cities whose growth had been determined by the chances and changes of centuries were characterized by no such regularity their houses stood in a maze of blind alleys and narrow dark and straggling streets with here and there a branch of a canal almost dried up during the greater part of the year and a muddy pond where the cattle drank and women came for water somewhere in each town was an open space shaded by sycamores or acacias and hither on market days came the peasants of the district two or three times in the month there were also waste places where rubbish and refuse was thrown to be quarrelled over by vultures hawks and dogs the lower classes lived in mere huts which though built of bricks were no better than those of the present fellahin in karnak in the pharaonic town at kom ombo in the roman town and at medinet habu in the coptic town the houses in the poorer quarters have seldom more than twelve or sixteen feet of frontage they consist of a ground floor with sometimes one or two living rooms above the middle-class folk as shopkeepers sub-officials and foremen were better housed their houses were brick-built and rather small yet contained some half-dozen rooms communicating by means of doorways which were usually arched over and having vaulted roofs in some cases and in others flat ones some few of the houses were two or three stories high and many were separated from the street by a narrow court beyond which the rooms were ranged on either side of a long passage more frequently the court was surrounded on three sides by chambers and yet oftener the house fronted close upon the street in the latter case the facade consisted of a high wall whitewashed or painted and surmounted by a cornice 
even in better houses the only ornamentation of their outer walls consisted in angular grooving the grooves being surmounted by representations of two lotus flowers each pair with the upper parts of the stalks in contact the door was the only opening save perhaps a few small windows pierced at irregular intervals even in unpretentious houses the door was often made of stone the doorposts projected slightly beyond the surface of the wall and the lintel supported a painted or sculpted cornice having crossed the threshold one passed successively through two dimly lighted entrance chambers the second of which opened into a central court the best rooms in the houses of the wealthier citizens were sometimes lighted through a square opening in the centre of a ceiling supported on wooden columns in the twelfth dynasty town of kahun the shafts of these columns rested upon round stone bases they were octagonal and about ten inches in diameter notwithstanding the prevalence of enteric disease and ophthalmia the family crowded together in one or two rooms during the winter and slept out on the roof under the shelter of mosquito nets in summer on the roof also the women gossiped and cooked the ground floor included both storerooms barns and stables private granaries were generally in pairs brick built in the same long canonical shape as the state granaries and carefully plastered with mud inside and out neither did people of a house forget to find or make hiding places in the walls or floors of their home where they could secrete their household treasures such as nuggets of gold and silver precious stones and jewellery for men and women from thieves and tax collectors alike wherever the upper floors still remained standing they reproduced the ground floor plan with scarcely any differences these upper rooms were reached by an outside staircase steep and narrow and divided at short intervals by small square landings the rooms were oblong and were lighted only from the doorway when it was decided to open windows on the street they were mere air holes near the ceiling pierced without regularity or symmetry fitted with a lattice of wooden crossbars and secured by wooden shutters the floors were bricked or paved or consisted still more frequently of merely a layer of rammed earth the rooms were not left undecorated the mud plaster of the walls generally in its native grey although whitewashed in some cases was painted with red or yellow and ornamented with drawings of interior and exterior views of a house and of household vessels and eatables the roof was flat and made probably as at the present day of closely laid rows of palm branches covered with a coating of mud thick enough to withstand the effects of rain sometimes it was surmounted by only one or two of the usual egyptian ventilators but generally there was a small wash-house on the roof and a little chamber for the slaves or guards to sleep in the household fire was made in a hollow of the earthen floor usually to one side of the room and the smoke escaped through a hole in the ceiling branches of trees charcoal and dried cakes of ass or cow dung were used for fuel the mansions of the rich and great covered a large space of ground they most frequently stood in the midst of a garden or of an enclosed court planted with trees and like the commoner houses they turned a blank front to the street consisting of bare walls battlemented like those of a fortress thus home life was strictly secluded and the pleasure of seeing was sacrificed for the advantage of not being seen the door was approached by a flight of two or three steps or by a porch supported on columns and adorned with statues which gave it a monumental appearance 
and indicated the social importance of the family. Sometimes this was preceded by a pylon gateway, such as usually heralded the approach to a temple. Inside the enclosure, it was like a small town, divided into quarters by irregular walls. The dwelling-house stood at the farther end, the granaries, stabling, and open spaces being distributed in different parts of the grounds, according to some system to which we as yet possess no clue. These arrangements, however, were infinitely varied. If I would convey some idea of the residence of an Egyptian noble, a residence half-palace, half-villa, I cannot do better than reproduce two out of the many pictorial plans which have come down to us from the tomb paintings of the 18th century. The first represents a Theban house. This enclosure is square and surrounded by an embattled wall. The main gate opens upon a road bordered with trees which runs beside a canal or perhaps an arm of the Nile. Low stone walls divide the garden into symmetrical compartments like those which are seen to this day in the great gardens of Ekmem or Gerga. In the centre is a large trellis supported on four rows of slender pillars. Four small ponds, two to the right and two to the left, are stocked with ducks and geese. Two nurseries, two summer houses, and various avenues of sycamores, date palms, and dom palms fill up the intermediate space, while at the end facing the entrance stands a small three-storied house surmounted by a painted cornice. The second plan is copied from one of the rock-cut tombs of Tel el Amana. Here we see a house situate at the end of the gardens of the great Lord Ai, son-in-law of the pharaoh Khuanaten, and himself afterwards king of Egypt. An oblong stone tank with sloping sides and two descending flights of steps faces the entrance. The building is rectangular, the width being somewhat greater than the depth. A large doorway opens in the middle of the front and gives access to a court planted with trees and flanked by storehouses fully stocked with provisions. Two small courts, placed symmetrically in the two farthest corners, contain the staircases which lead up to the roof terrace. This first building, however, is but the frame which surrounds the owner's dwelling. The two frontages are each adorned with a pillared portico and a pylon. Passing the outer door, we enter a sort of long central passage divided by two walls pierced with doorways so as to form three successive courts. The inside court is bordered by chambers, the other two open to right and left upon two smaller courts whence flights of steps lead up to the terraced roof. This central building is called the Akonuti or private dwelling of kings or nobles, to which only the family and intimate friends had access. The number of stories and the arrangement of the façade varied according to the taste of the owner. The frontage was, generally, a straight wall. Sometimes it was divided into three parts, with the middle division projecting, in which case the two wings were ornamented with a colonnade to each story, or surmounted by an open gallery. The central pavilion sometimes presents the appearance of a tower, which dominates the rest of the building. The façade is often decorated with slender colonnettes of painted wood, which bear no weight and merely serve to lighten the somewhat severe aspect of the exterior. Of the internal arrangements, we know but little. As in the middle-class houses, the sleeping rooms were probably small and dark, but, on the other hand, the reception rooms must have been 
nearly as large as those still in use in the arab houses of modern egypt the decoration of walls and ceilings in no wise resembled such scenes or designs as we find in the tombs the ceilings were usually left white sometimes however they were decorated with geometrical patterns which repeated the leading motives employed in the sepulchral wall paintings thus we find examples of meanders interspersed with rosettes party-coloured squares ox-heads seen frontwise scrolls and flights of geese i have touched chiefly upon houses of the second theban period this being the time of which we have the most examples the house-shaped lamps which are found in such large numbers in the fayum date only from roman times but the egyptians of that period continued to build according to the rules which were in force under the pharaohs of the twelfth eighteenth nineteenth and twentieth dynasties as regards the domestic architecture of the ancient kingdom the evidences are few and obscure nevertheless the stelae tombs and coffins of that period often furnish designs which show us the style of the doorways and one fourth dynasty sarcophagus that of khufu posku is carved in the likeness of a house end of chapter one section one recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia